Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Hello, uh, this is FEPS Talks. My name is Laszlo Andor. I'm the Secretary General of FEPS, the Foundation for European Progressive Studies, which is located in Brussels. And in the recent months, we have been working in our home offices. Uh, today, for the Talk podcast, my guest is Professor James Galbraith, who is a well-known author, a professor at the University of Texas, and uh, he's also well-known in Europe. And it's very important to mention that uh, in previous years, he also was a member of a progressive economic group when this group was organized by the Social Democratic faction in the European Parliament. And we met on a number of occasions also at the time of the Eurozone crisis. So he is someone who has the capacity not only to compare the crisis experience on the two sides of the Atlantic, but also compare the crisis response in the euro area crisis time, the Great Recession, and the so-called COVID recession. And in particular, I will ask him about the social consequences and whether he can see a strong connection between the economic situation, the fallout of the COVID crisis, and what we have seen as uh, race riots in the United States, but also elsewhere, a very strong upheaval of uh, social movements protesting existing race relations and what we also learned about the Black Lives Matter uh, campaign. But let's start with the economics. Uh, James, if I can invite you to comment on that first of all. Do you think there is a chance or a probability that the current crisis uh, would be better handled on the two sides of the Atlantic and the United States and the European Union respectively? What did you see as main problems 10 years ago or or eight years ago? And whether uh, the leaders uh, learned something to avoid um, the bad outcomes which we were facing at that time? First of all, uh, thank you. It's it's a pleasure to be with you and it's good to see you again. The uh, proposition that political leaders learn anything is one that I would always regard with a great deal of, of, uh, let's just say, skepticism uh, born out of long observation. Uh, It's not a safe assumption. In this case, I think it's important to distinguish the the two crises. Uh, This one is, I think, the more serious of the two. And it's the more serious of the two because it comes into and essentially has effectively collapsed a global economic structure that had been built up over 40 or 50 years in the age of neoliberalism, which was not so much true the last time around. The last time we had, it was a collapse effectively of the the financial sector based upon collapse of of mortgage uh, equity in the United States uh, and then spread to Europe. This time we're looking at something which is going to have a profound effect on the global system and it's going to have a serious, especially serious effect on the wealthy countries. Why? because they're the countries that produce investment goods for the global system. Uh, and yeah, if you can think about it, leading examples, Boeing and the United States Airbus in Europe, they don't produce for their national markets. They produce for the world market, and they produce a product, a half of which are on the ground, have no not being flown. And therefore, the production rates are going to fall on those things. And you can go around the, 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 the spectrum of advanced products oil field services and information technology. Uh, and it's the, essentially the same story almost everywhere. 
so we're looking at a profound and prolonged crisis. And there's a second element which applies, I think, both sides of the Atlantic, which is that a very large part of the employment uh, that has grown up in the wealthy countries uh, is services sector employment. In the United States, is practically everything that's been jobs. Jobs have been created prolifically in the United States since the last crisis. Uh, but they're mostly service sector jobs. Uh, they're rel- they cater to medium and high income people. Uh, they're everything from coffee shops to gyms to, uh, you know, you name it, physical therapists, uh, one thing after another. And this is all discretionary expenditure. Uh, and when the, when the community decides that it doesn't want to spend uh, because it's deeply uncertain about the future, uh, those jobs collapse and the incomes that go with them go away. So on those two grounds, uh, I think all the rich countries have, are facing a crisis which is not so easily remedied. In the United States, after the last one, it turned out that spending a lot of money uh, in uh, automatic stabilizers and in the stimulus packages actually did uh, eventually bring the economy more or less back into a state of function. Uh, What we learned from that uh, was that that was a good idea. And what we did in the U.S. in this crisis was to do the same thing on an even larger scale. Uh, We flushed the economy with money in March and April. Uh, And it had certainly had a very interesting and important effect on uh, the balance sheet of American households. It it, It prevented some early difficulties. People were not, for example, there was not a lot of uh, defaults or uh, on rent, uh, mm-hmm. on mortgages. Uh, and as a result, that problem uh, still lurks in the future, but it's not as big presently as it might otherwise have been. Um, but at the same time, uh, you have to recognize that the limit, there are limits to what people will do with this cash uh, the savings rate in April was was 33% of income. It was enormous uh, in the United States. And so uh, people put some away very sensibly. At the same time, you can't expect that they're going to go out and reanimate the bars and the restaurants and other places, which are not only, not to mention sports stadiums and concert halls and mm-hmm. everything else that people were doing with their time and money, which are not only uh, problematic from a public health standpoint, they're risky, but there are also things that you can do without uh, if you need to store up money because you don't know if you're going to get a job again. So for this reason, I think we're looking at a situation where even if the lessons were learned the last time, uh, they're not going to be adequate to deal with the problem. That's what I'm uh, arguing that I'm trying to trying to get across to people. Uh, in terms of the, of the contrast between the U.S. and Europe, the U.S. is much faster on the draw with large-scale relief programs. Uh, the Federal Reserve was very fast with uh, trillions of, of uh, support for the bond and effectively the stock market. The, um, uh, the European Central Bank, uh, not so fast. Uh, and, and the U.S. Congress was very fast with two trillion of, uh, of, of direct support. It took the European system uh, quite a long time to come up with 500 billion of euros and uh, and that uh, so far as I'm aware, is uh, something of a is not as big a number even as it appears to be. Um, and of course, the European problem is, as always, uh, the fragmented character of Europe in the face of a European crisis. So, in the in the major 
early stages of this, Italy was getting very little from Europe, for, from Germany and from other countries, um, and, and getting its assistance to the extent that it got assistance from anywhere. It came from China, came from Cuba. Mm-hmm. Right? And this was, you know, from a standpoint of the effect on Italian public opinion, very, very important developments. They, didn't, they weren't getting it from their European partners. Uh, all of whom were preoccupied with their own national problems. So Europe situation is much more. Europe in Europe, the, the it's obvious that the situation is very different from one country to the next. Uh, some countries handled their internal situations well. Germany did. Others uh, were overwhelmed at first, just as Italy was, or Greece, which was in a very weak position, actually did a pretty good job. Uh, uh, Spain was overwhelmed for a while. Uh, the difference now is that the European Union, having generally speaking gotten its act together at the national level, has now got a relatively low rate of new cases. Um, the U.S., where the responses were very mixed across the country and the federal government was not an effective presence, in fact, was actually dysfunctional, where we're seeing that caseloads are going up uh, and there's a, we have the additional factor with an election coming along in November. There's enormous pressure politically to, to reopen, so-called reopen the economy. And the price of, doing, of yielding to that pressure is that the, the virus is, uh, is, is resurging and is it getting out of control. It, certainly there's a risk that it was getting out of control in certain parts of the country. So you do not assume that there would be a kind of bouncing back on either side of the Atlantic after the recession, because as you said, it's um, it's a harsher crisis than the previous one because uh, the recession came more suddenly. Right? It was not this so slow slide like in 2007 and 8 in the United States when the subprime crisis slowly developed from one sector to another, uh, but 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 very sudden, and then probably there's no bouncing back. Uh, contrary to the rhetoric of um, some political leaders, because the, the, the recovery would need to be kind of orchestrated and, and, and we also would need to ensure that, in a way, it's not the same economic structure which comes back, but some reconstruction elements would also be integrated into... Yeah, there's, uh, it, the crucial thing is that to get a full recovery, you need a major reorganization of the system. Mm. Uh, and I think that's true on both sides of the Atlantic. Will there be a bounce back in the third quarter? I think there will be. Uh, they, uh, the fall in the second quarter, don't know exactly how large it was. The predictions at the time were on the order of uh, 40% at an annual rate. Yep. Absolutely catastrophic. Um, and a recovery of at a rate of 25% in the third quarter is very possible. That would be a historically high number, but it doesn't recover from the mm-hmm. 40% loss. So you're looking at, over if you look over the year, You're looking at a decline that's um, on Great Depression level, six, nine, ten percent, and uh, a major decline uh, and on non-recovery of of the employment situation. So, mm-hmm. I, I, my worry is that people will be misled by short-term economic growth statistics uh, that are coming up in the at the end of the summer. Uh, this will look. Everybody say, "Oh, everything's going to be fine," because it looks there's a, a, a one-quarter bounce. That means that the that the following quarters will also look great, and that's not not a safe assumption. So one has to think about how this plays out in that respect. Um, but yes, the the fundamental point is that going forward to uh, absorb uh, the people who are presently being displaced, both in the advanced sectors and in the service sectors, 
you're going to need a model uh, which is uh, substantially less profit-based. Mm-hmm. I mean, just think about if you're running a restaurant uh, and you a restaurant is not a high-margin business. Uh, it usually has a bar. It depends upon a sales uh, to a large crowd on Saturday and Friday and Saturday nights. Um, and you can't do that. You can't put people at the bar and you can't bring in more than half of your uh, capacity if you can do that. And it's not, even if you can do that on public health grounds, it's not clear you can get the crowd to come. So you're looking at a model which has gone from being slightly profitable to being uh, unprofitable. And that's, you multiply that by millions of cases across all kinds of, of, um, of small and medium enterprises which supply many, many millions of jobs. Well, if you want to have uh, those enterprises, you need to do them on a cooperative basis, on a nonprofit basis, on a joint public-private basis, on a public basis, some mm-hmm. other way. Uh, and to mention another sector, uh, which is of great importance um, in both Europe and the United States, higher education. Uh, in the United States, higher education has been in a competitive price war going up, prices going up for decades well, and now the people say, do I really want to spend, uh, you know, $60,000 a year to send uh, my children to an, a, a, a campus where they're piled in on top of other young people and very likely to spread the, uh, the disease? Uh, uh, the answer to that, to a very large extent, is going to be no. Uh, and then you say, okay, how much are you willing to spend? The answer is going to be much less to get, let's say, an online experience, much less. So all of that sector looks like it's got to be reorganized on a different basis. Yes. Uh, if, I, if, if we can stick to the comparison for another second, um, in, in, in late March and early April, we were really shocked by the rise of um, unemployment in the United States. And of course, we knew that it will also rise in uh, Europe. But um, it was not the same speed, uh, largely because... Um, of you know, European governments rolling out various wage subsidies and short-time work <laughs> in order to retain uh, the workforce. Probably more countries were using these practices uh, than in the past crisis, and the European Union also introduced a new scheme, although not yet uh, functioning, uh, but, but still a new scheme to, to subsidize these short-time work um, arrangements uh, in German Kurzarbeit. Uh, is this cosmetic change in your view, or is this a game changer, or is this um, uh, moderately significant under the current circumstances, which is a special recession? Yeah, it's a bit early to tell. Uh, in the United States, there was a mixture of basically three different ways to get money uh, out into the household sector. There was a direct payment to tax filers, it was a so-called stimulus payment. Uh, there was a, a, a PPP, payroll protection program, which was a loan organized through uh, the, uh, the banking system, uh, through the Small Business Administration, uh, to keep people on payroll. And then there was a very large uh, supplement to unemployment insurance, which proved to be the dominant thing. Uh, so there was a very strong incentive, actually, in the U.S. Uh, for employers just to lay people off. Because once they got through what their difficulties getting enrolled in the unemployment insurance program. But once those were worked out, the income that was coming from the unemployment insurance was as good or better in many cases than they were getting at work. This is why you had um, so many millions 
filing for unemployment insurance on the order of 30, 35 million so far, something in that range. Um, and uh, in Europe, uh, the payroll protection was much more orderly. Uh, they, and basically, and it could have been done in this country as well, uh, that uh, you, you provide money to the firm and the firm continues to pay. Uh, and I argued for this. And uh, I was, it was actually a bipartisan argument. There were people mm-hmm. like Glenn Hubbard, who was the chair of the council under economic advisors under George Bush, was on the same page on this. Just get the money to the businesses and let them keep all on payroll. Uh, what will happen in the long run depends on whether the businesses are viable. They w- will not it, it keep them on payroll, but then the business cannot reopen or cannot doesn't need the personnel. When it does reopen, they'll be laid off d- in, down the road. And that will happen uh, in Europe as well, and, and this, unless there's an arrangement somehow to permanently cover uh, the shortfalls that the businesses are going to experience. Uh, so I think it's early to tell whether these two systems, which are obviously done very, very in great haste and somewhat haphazardly, certainly in the U.S. it was very haphazard, mm-hmm. uh, whether they converge in terms of their ultimate effect. That's entirely possible to me that they will. Right. And now let's come to the critical question, the consequences. Is it just a coincidence that in this year, when we have this special crisis, massive rise of the unemployment, um, and a health crisis, we also witness uh, the spread of practically riots, uh, uh, like a bushfire, uh, after a very tragic police intervention of a style which is probably not entirely new, right? Police brutality, is it new in the United States? Probably not. People occasionally dying because of this harsh intervention, probably not you know, without precedent. But this year, it started to spread as a bushfire. And not only in the United States, but also elsewhere. Uh, Black Lives Matter is now a major slogan. Um, could you give us a little bit of the background with uh, the perspective which you, you probably have uh, better than we do? Okay, a couple of things. First of all, I, I, I want to challenge the use of the word riots, uh, which is not the situation in the United States. Uh, and they uh, use it a couple of times. These are not riots and they're not race riots. They are protests uh, and they are um, multiracial protests on a very large scale. Uh, As you say correctly, it's not a new thing. Uh, uh, The George Floyd uh, murder in Minneapolis uh, was a trigger. Uh, It was caught on video. It made it extremely clear what the normal practice is. The uh, killing of uh, people by police in the United States amounts to about a thousand cases a year on average. It's a thousand cases a year. Uh, that is, uh, 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 so if you are a member of the African American community uh, in the United States, the, uh, the, the, you have an experience of this that goes back, you know, it goes back more than you know, a century and a half. Uh, but certainly all through the 20th century uh, of having uh, essentially largely all white, uh, substantially white police forces acting as a kind of occupying force, not as a protective force in your community. Uh, And this is a, a, the the protests on this have been uh, emergent over the years. Uh, There was uh, the major incident in uh, Ferguson, Missouri, a few years ago, which roiled the country. Uh, And the difference this time is that the protests have gone on. Uh, they have not. Uh, they have. They've spread. 
uh, and they spread uh, well out of the um, uh, of the African American areas and of the mixed race cities and into the small towns, which are 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 largely um, you know white settlement. Uh, and, and the solidarity for the with the with, with the protests has been very very large. And if you look at the the protests themselves, they're overwhelmingly orderly. Uh, people are people are wearing masks. They're, to the extent you can in a protest, they're staying a certain distance. Um, the violence has been of two kinds, uh, entirely uh, un- inexcusable actions by the police in certain cases, uh, using, um, for example, uh, uh, well, sometimes driving cars into the crowd, sometimes using things like uh, high-powered bean bags. Uh, there was a case in my hometown in Austin of a young man, 20 years old, a college student, was hit in the head, um, had a fractured skull from a so-called less than lethal weapon. He's in, he was in critical condition. I don't know his condition right now. Uh, these things are outrageous. Uh, it's not the way the police should be conducting themselves. It's not. But, and so the, the call for reforms and uh, is, 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 is very, very broadly based. What is impressive about these uh, protests is that they've been they've been sustained uh, and they've been growing. And as you said, of course, they have a large international component because the the message is also supported around the world. So it's it's really quite a remarkable moment uh, and one which uh, uh, has uh, has the potential uh, to to uh, you know to begin to to actually bring about some change. Uh, maybe the first time since the civil rights movement of the 1960s, or since the anti-war movements in the 1970s, uh, that we've seen this. I have to say, word all all of my children are involved in one way or another, and I'm uh, <laughs> I'm very proud of them. Um, that's where we are. Is there a Trump factor in this? Because um, the current president, um, when we he was campaigning uh, four years ago. He introduced the slogan, Make America Great Again. And then uh, the outgoing President Obama translated it as Make America White Again. That comes from Obama, this interpretation of uh, the Trump uh, uh, slogan. Am I mistaken that uh, this must have been some kind of constant irritation for a lot of people, with or without the police brutality, but then um, you know, experiencing this and also the impact uh, of the COVID on the African-American community, uh, which is disproportionately uh, hitting them, uh, according to the statistics, is part of the explanation. I'm not sure. Uh, So far as I've seen in the protests, and obviously I don't see the full picture, uh, that that this is not, uh, so far as I can tell, directed in a, in, in a significant way as other protests in the Trump era have been against Donald Trump. Uh, mm. The people are focused on on the police departments in their own communities, and they recognize that they're dealing with a structural or a systemic problem. This is why we use the phrase systemic racism. Uh, it's not personal racism. It's the systemic racism. Uh, sometimes carried out by people who don't consider themselves to be racist, right? Mm-hmm. But it's this, it's this systemic is the issue here. Uh, and so this transcends Trump and will go on beyond, uh, will not be, not be solved by, the federal government does not control local police departments. It uh, will go on uh, after Trump uh, is gone. What is interesting, though, is that the effort to generate a counter-movement of so-called, you know, white supremacists, supremacist militias, and so forth, um, that may have generated a few incidents of provocation, maybe a few incidents of vandalism are associated with that to try and 
justify a, a police reaction and provoke a police reaction. Um, but uh, I see no sign of a large scale uh, counter movement with popular, with major popular reach. And, and what, the, what you see instead is evidence that the, that the Trump faction is just basically losing its grip on the American imagination. Uh, they're desperately trying to shift the blame on everything to China. Uh, I guess that's part of the narrative. I don't think that works. Uh, that people can understand that America has its own problems that are not generated by the, by the People's Republic of China. Yeah, yeah, desperately trying to 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 reestablish the narrative of a coming back economy. Trump went down to Tulsa, and 6,800 people showed up in an arena that would hold 19,000, uh, and that was a you know a fiasco, uh, reflecting on the whole the good sense of the citizens of Tulsa, Oklahoma, <laughs> decided they'd better stay home. Um, they uh, whatever their political views were, uh, and uh, so you're looking at uh, at an administration which is increasingly politically beleaguered. You know, whether this will lead to something in a, in a constructive sense, who knows? But this mm-hmm. is a it's, a, it's a, it's a rather fraught and interesting moment in the United States in that respect. You mentioned in your previous answer the civil rights movement of the 1960s. And I suppose you were a kid uh, in those times. Uh, well, I definitely was younger than I am now. Yes, that uh, was my guess. Um, but um, uh, the reason I'm mentioning this, and I would like to come back to this for a minute, is that um, uh, for some people, uh, maybe more in Europe than elsewhere, uh, there is a kind of one-dimensional interpretation of this, that civil rights is mainly about politics, uh, while um, uh, if you remember Martin Luther King Jr., the, uh, the point was also about uh, you know, the fight against poverty and economic progress uh, uh, for the African-American community uh, in the United States. Is this... Um, is this forgotten and is this a kind of inspiration the same way for the contemporary social movement? Yeah, at the moment, discussion, uh, they, let's say to the extent that there's an organized political message, uh, it's really focused on, uh, on the Black Lives Matter. Uh, but you're quite right uh, that there is, uh, in the history of the civil rights movement, actually two other uh, trends which were merging uh, in the late 60s, 67, 68. Uh, one of them was war on poverty, which, which of course, was strongly advanced in the Johnson administration. Um, it wasn't simply the civil rights movement. It was also national public policy. And the other was the anti-war movement, the movement against the war in Vietnam, in which my father was a leading figure. Uh, and there was a convergence and a correspondence uh, between uh, them, between my father and, and, and Martin Luther King Jr. in particular. Uh, on bringing these together, which was uh, forestalled by the murder of Martin Luther King Jr. in Memphis in mm. April of 1968. So some of the same issues are present now uh, and will develop over time. Right now, I say that's a very interesting thing in the United States that uh, because of the scale of the uh, immediate reaction. Uh, to the uh, to the to the COVID crisis, and actually, the financial situation of working Americans is uh, really not so bad. I mean, in many of the cases, they have more savings than they had in March. Um, and the savings rate in April, as I said, was thirty three percent, something like that, it was an enormous. And so, you can argue that that giving people 
uh, a financial reserve unleashes a certain amount of political energy, uh, which they might not otherwise be have the time or the uh, to do. But this is going to very likely diminish over the summer and fall. The unemployment insurance will stop and all these things will, will, will run out unless they're renewed. And in which case you get, uh, you begin to get the economic dimension really pressing on people's consciousness as well. Uh, and that, uh, that means that some, some issue about the economic restructuring along with the, with the strike, struggle for racial justice, uh, you may well get a convergence uh, down the road. Right now, though, I don't see it. I, I, the, uh, specifically, uh, issues of racial justice and are, are very much in the forefront. The issues that were being uh, fronted in the Sanders campaign, uh, Medicare for all, uh, free college, uh, you know, debt-free higher education and so forth, have somewhat receded a bit uh, in the discussion. Uh, and this is going to be very much the question of how you how you how you bring these things together as a, a task in front of us. Maybe a last hypothesis before we finish uh, uh, this conversation. Um, I think the COVID crisis probably exposed uh, the weakness of what we can call public health system in the United yeah. States. And um, uh, you know, we we looked at um, the experiment of Obama with uh, the healthcare reform uh, with a great interest because um, you know, from a European perspective, the interpretation is that on these matters, what concerns the welfare state, uh, the U.S. is behind us. Uh, maybe the U.S. can be richer, uh, but on these aspects of uh, you know social safety nets and and, and public health. U.S. Uh, definitely has a, a less developed system than most Europeans. And in many ways, uh, the justification for some kind of social reform is just so obvious. Uh, but then the question is, what is the social reform? Is there a possibility to define a kind of social reform which would be not only necessary, but also possible um, in the United States in the coming years? Yes, public health uh, provision deteriorated over 40 or 50 years in the United States. It's not, the U.S. is not alone in that. Uh, it, it deteriorated in France, it deteriorated in Italy. All of these systems were in the countries hit by austerity, deteriorated very badly in Greece, where it was never strong to begin with. They, all of these systems were hit very badly by neoliberal austerity. Uh, the U.S. was, the problem was not so much austerity. Uh, the healthcare system in the United States is enormous. It's 18% of, of GDP in the uh, when we actually had GDP, it's probably much larger than that now <laughs> yeah, because of the decline of everything else. But the problem in the U.S. was the structure of the system, uh, its basis in a fee-for-service uh, setting, uh, and therefore its orientation toward uh, a lot of elective procedures, a lot of treatment of, of the elderly, for example. Um, and as, as you can see, a system that was not oriented toward dealing with a massive public health problem. Certain aspects uh, of it uh, have largely collapsed. Uh, it was clear that there was no way the private insurance system could handle COVID-19. And so that was taken over basically as a public function. But at the same time, the incentives on particularly financially stressed public hospitals may be, have been to press for the most expensive and the most aggressive treatments, or not really treatments, but interventions, uh, which turned out to be very lethal. You know, so we had a high casualty rate of people going on to ventilators. Uh, mm -hmm. Did they need to go on to ventilators? I mean, that's an issue that needs to be investigated. Uh, 
because it, that's a, I mean, you, you can see that, the, that in certain places where that happened, the mortality rates were very high. So the whole system uh, is, turns out to be perverse and dysfunctional in the face of a public health crisis. Thinking through how to reform it, what to do, without going to the model where you have a public health system that then gets, which is the only the one everyone relies on, and which then gets squeezed down by austerity to the point that it can't meet the challenge, which is what happened in northern Italy in Bergamo, for example, is a really complicated, or at least a, a problem that needs to be thought through by by in a very serious way mm-hmm. as we as we come out of this. Uh, we did not, in the end, in the U.S., run out of hospital beds and you know, facilities and so forth, but we see of the of structure of the system for this problem. So it's very very apparent. But do you expect any kind of strong uh, uh, reform proposal featuring, for example, in the Democratic campaign, which is, uh, you know, forthcoming uh, before the fall? The Democratic campaign uh, is going to be a hybrid of Joe Biden's personality with Bernie Sanders' ideas and programs. And so a great many things which were in the Sanders campaign will be the future program of the Democratic Party. Some of that's very good uh, from, the, from a larger standpoint. Does it rise to the, to the specific problems brought out by, by COVID-19, to the global collapse, uh, to, to, the, uh, to the collapse of the services sector uh, in employment? My view is that we have to go well beyond it. Uh, and so that's, that's where I'm focused right now is that, yes, there were a great many things that, that, that were uh, the reform structure for the full employment, highly leveraged, unequal economy that existed up till March, something else entirely is going to be needed now. And we've got to start thinking about that and working on it. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, we will continue to follow with interest the developments in the United States. And um, of course, we will come back to you um, at a later stage um, uh, in order to compare uh, the economic okay. experience, but also uh, the social conditions on the two sides of uh, the Atlantic. Professor Galvez, Thank you so much for your time. And um, I also thank um, our audience for the attention. Please keep um, continuing uh, to follow uh, the talks um, in various channels. Uh, bye-bye. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag Talks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.